Chapter 1 of An Earthman on Venus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alexis Duclos of the French podcast Citizen Cage. An Earthman on Venus by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter 1. The Message in the Meteor. Never had it been so frightened in all my life. It was a warm evening late in August, and I was sitting on the kitchen steps of my Chappaquiddick Island farmhouse, discussing the draw with one of the farmhands. Suddenly there appeared in the sky over our head a flaming fiery mass, rushing straight downwards toward us. Here's where a shooting star gets me, I thought as I instinctively ducked my head, just as though such a feeble move as ducking one's head could afford any possible protection from the flaming terror. The next instant there came a dull crash, followed by silence, which in turn was broken by the hired man dryly remarking, I reckon she struck over to Cohill. Cohill was the slight elevation just back of our farmhouse. So the meteor hadn't been aimed exactly at me, after all. If that thing had hit me, someone else would be giving to the world this story. We did nothing further about the meteor that night, being pretty well shaken up by the occurrence. But next morning, as soon as the chores were done, the hired man and I hastened to the top of Coe Hill to look for signs of last night's fiery visitor. And, sure enough, there were plenty of signs. Every spear of grass was singed from the top of the hill. The big rock on the summit showed marks of a collision. And several splinters of some black, igneous material were lying through the round. Leading from the big rock there ran down the steep side of the hill a gradually deepening furrow, ending in a sort of caved-in hole. We could not let slip such a good opportunity to get some newspaper publicity for our farm, and so on the following Friday a full account of the meteoric visitation appeared in the Vineyard Gazette, with the result that quite a number of summer folks walked across the island from the bathing beach to look at the hole. And there was another reason. For early the following week I received a letter from Professor Gerrish of the Harvard Observatory stating that he had read about the meteor in the paper and requesting that I send him a small piece or, if possible, the whole meteor by express collect for purposes of analysis. Anything for dear old Harvard. Unfortunately, all the black splinters had been carried away by tourists, so I set the men to work digging out the main body. Quite a hole was dug before we came to the meteor. A black pear-shaped object about the size of a barrel. With rock-tongued chains and my pair of percherons, we dragged this out onto the level. I had hoped that it would be small enough so that I could send the whole thing up to Harvard and perhaps have it set up in front of the Agassiz Museum, marked with a bronze plate bearing my name, but its sides preclude this. My wife, who was present when we hauled it out, remarked, It looks just like a huge black teardrop or raindrop. And sure enough it did. 
But why not? If raindrops take on a streamlined form in falling, why might not a more solid meteor do so as well? But I had never heard of one doing so before. This new idea prompted me to take careful measurements and to submit them to Professor O.D. Kellogg of the Harvard Mathematics Department, who was summering at West Chop nearby. He reported to me that the form was as perfectly streamlined as it was possible to conceive, but that my surmise as to how it had become so was absurd. While making these measurements, I was attracted by another feature of the meteor. At one place on the side, doubtless where it had struck the big rock, the black coating had been chipped away, disclosing a surface of yellow metal underneath. Also, there was to be seen in this metal an absolutely straight crack, extending as far as the metal was exposed, in a sidewise direction. At the time, the crack did not attract me so much as the metal. I vaguely wondered if it might not be gold. But, being reminded of Professor Gerrish's request for a sample of the meteor, I had one of the men start chiseling off some pieces. The natural spot to begin was alongside of the place where the covering was already chipped. It was hard work, but finally removed several pieces, and then we noticed that the crack continued around the waist of the meteor as far as had been chipped. This crack, from its absolute regularity, gave every indication of being man-made. Our curiosity was aroused. Why the regularity of this crack? How far did it go? Could it possibly extend clear way around? Was it really a threaded joint? And if so, how could such a phenomenon occur on a meteorite drop from the sky? Forgotten what the second crop mowing we had planned to do that day. Hastily summoning the rest of the help, we set to work with cold chisel and sledges to remove the black coating in a circle around the middle of the huge teardrop. It was a long and tedious task, for the black substance was harder than anything I had ever chipped before. We broke several drills and dented the yellow metal unmercifully, but not so much that we could see that the threaded crack did actually persist. The dinner hour passed, and still we worked, unmindful of the appeals of our womenfolk, who finally abandoned us with much shrugging of shoulders. It was nearly night when we completed the chipping and applied two chain wrenches to try and screw the thing apart. But, after all our efforts, it would not budge. Just as we were about to drop the wrenches and start to chisel through the metal, Someone suggested that we try to unscrew it as a left-handed screw. Happy thought! For, in spite of all the dents which we had made, the two hands at last gradually untwisted. What warrant did we have to suppose that there was anything inside it? I must confess, now it is all over, that we went through this whole day's performance in a sort of feverish trance with no definite notion of what we were doing or why, and yet impelled by a crazy fixed idea that we were on the verge of a great discovery. And at last our efforts had met with success, and the huge teardrop lay before us in two neatly threaded parts, 
The inside was hollow and was entirely filled with something tightly swathed in silver-colored felt tape. Breathless, we unwound over 300 feet of this silver tape and finally came to a gold cylinder about the size and shape of a ginger snap tin, that is to say, a foot long and three inches in diameter, chased all around with peculiar arabesque characters. By this time, Mrs. Farley and my mother-in-law and the hired girl had joined us, attracted by the shouts which we gave when the teardrop had come apart. One end of the cylinder easily unscrewed also with the left-handed thread, and I drew forth a manuscript, plainly written in the English language, on some tissue-thin substance like parchment. Everyone clustered around me as I turned to the end to see who it was from, and I read with astonishment the following signature, Mouse S. Cabot. But this name meant nothing to anyone present except myself. I heard one of the hands remark to another, "'Twant no shooting store at all. Nothing but some friend of the boss shooting a letter to him out of one of these here long-range guns.' "'Maybe so,' said I to myself. But Mrs. Farley was quivering with excitement. "'You must tell me all about it, Raph,' said she. "'Who can be sending you a message inside a meteor, I wonder?' My reply was merely, I think that there is a clipping in one of my scrapbooks up in the attic which will answer that question. There was. I found the scrapbook in a chest under the eaves, but did not open it until after chores and supper, during which meal I kept a provoking silence on the subject of our discovery. When the dishes were finally all cleared away, I opened the book on the table and read to the assembled household the following four-year-old clipping from the Boston Post. Citizen disappears. Prominent clubman vanishes from Beacon Street home. Miles S. Cabot of 162 Beacon Street disappeared from his bachelor quarters late yesterday afternoon under very mysterious circumstances. He had been working all day in his radio laboratory on the top floor of his house and had refused to come down for lunch. When called to dinner, he made no reply, so his butler finally decided to break down the door, which was locked. The laboratory was found to be empty, all the windows were closed and locked, and the key was on the inside of the door. In the heap on the floor lay a peculiar collection of objects, consisting of Mr. Cabot's watch and chain, pocket knife, signet ring, cufflinks and tie pin, some coins, a metal bed buckle, two sets of garter snaps, some safety pins, a gold pen point, a pen clip, a silver pencil, some steel buttons and several miscellaneous bits of metal. There was a smell in the air like one notices in electric power houses. The fuses on the laboratory power line were all blown out. The butler immediately phoned to police headquarters and Detective Flynn was dispatched to the scene. He questions all the servants thoroughly and confirmed the foregoing facts. The police are working on the case. Miles S. Cabot, whose mysterious disappearance yesterday has shocked Boston society, was the only son of the late Alden Cabot. His mother was a Sears of Southborough. The younger Cabot, since his graduation from Harvard, had devoted himself to electrical experimenting. 
although prominent in the social life of the city and an active member of the Union University New York Yaw and Middlesex Hunt Clubs, he nevertheless had found time to invent novel and useful radio devices, among the best known of which was the Indestructo vacuum tube. He had established at his Beacon Street residence one of the best equipped radio laboratories in the city. His most recent experiment, according to professional friends, had been with television. Mr. Cabot substituted two circuits for the usual television circuit, one controlling the vertical lines of his sending and receiving screens, and the other the horizontal, thus enabling him to enlarge his screen considerably and also to present a continuous picture instead of one made up of dots, the effect of perspective he obtained by adding a third circuit. The detail of this invention had not been given out by Mr. Cabot prior to his disappearance. His nearest relatives, a cousin. The last was a particularly gentle touch, it seemed to me. Well, his cousins hadn't yet inherited his property, although they had tried mighty hard, and perhaps this mysterious message from the void would prevent them from ever doing so. I hoped that this would be the case, for I liked Miles, and had never liked those cousins of his. Miles had been a classmate of mine at Harvard, though later path drifted apart, his leading into back base society and radio, and my leading into the quiet pastoral life of a farm on Chappaquiddick Island off the coast of Massachusetts. I had heard little of him until I read the shocking account of his sudden disappearance. The police had turned up no further clues, and the matter had quickly faded from the public sight. I had kept the post-clipping as a memento of my old college chum. I was anxious to learn what had become of him these four years, so I opened the manuscript and proceeded to read aloud. In the following chapters, I shall give the story contained in that manuscript, a story so weird and yet so convincingly simple that it cannot fail to interest all those who knew Miles Cabot. It completely clears up the mystery surrounding his disappearance. Of course, there will be some who will refuse to believe that this story is the truth. But those of his classmates and friends who knew him well will find herein unmistakable internal evidence of Mal's Cabot's hand in this narrative conveyed to me in the golden heart of a meteorite. End of chapter 1 The Message in the Meteor Recording by Alexis Duclos of the French podcast Citizen Cage